0: This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host George Khalife. So, so one of the things we were talking about uh, before starting this, Justin, was the fact that you know you went from uh, you know corporate in the freight management tech slash transportation space, and then about almost I was want to say four and a half five years ago, uh, you co-founded a startup called Rose Rocket, which is an order management software for the trucking industry, uh, where you're the chief strategy officer. What's even more interesting and the reason why we, we wanted to connect on, on a kind of a broader theme is, you know, being the co-founder of a startup is is difficult on one perspective. Being the co-founder of a startup while having, you know, four children and managing both your personal, your professional life is even more challenging. And so, first off, happy Father's Day, happy Canada Day now that we're doing this. But I'd love to get your perspective as to how you've managed the transition, first of all, from corporate to startup.
1: Um, Well, thank you, and uh, uh, and thanks for having me. Um, I I guess, you know, I was and am probably a – if you were to do an entrepreneurial test online that said, are you an entrepreneur, and you check all the boxes, I I probably would score, you know, 100 out of 100 on that test. So I think even in my corporate days, my my mind was always really focused on um, how could I make this better, and there's generally a, a bit of an arrogance, um, especially when you're, I think, a bit younger uh, around, not how could I do this better, but I could do this better. So I, I just saw so many opportunities that really I, I couldn't ignore them. And, and it was, it really felt very mission driven in terms of having to do something. Um, I don't want to say on my own, because this has certainly been the contribution of, of many. But um, yeah, I, you know, I think it was just, it was really what I what I had to do. So the transition um, from from corporate to startup was was very natural and quite frankly, I've never really thought of it before.
0: Gotcha. So you're basically an entrepreneur while working in corporate, and and you always had that mind. Um, I, I'm curious when you really wanted to make that jump. Was it something that you were you know thinking about for a while? Like what what really made you want to take that leap fully and commit full time? I would say to the startup and, and just kind of letting go of, of the past life.
1: Yeah, I. I don't know that there was a, there was an exact moment. And as I, as I think about that question, I, I don't know that I recall again, this, this spark mm-hmm. of now, now I have to do it. I, I think That's that, right. you know, when I, when I sort of made the transition from, from corporate, if we want to sort of talk about five fortune 500 company um, that was a little prior to when Rose rocket started. So I, that was, that was in sort of 2008, 2009. And and there was obviously a, a pretty large um financial crisis, you know, happening at that time. And so there was just a lot of shaking up of things. So there was a bit of a natural mm. um, uh, a move, I guess, in, in in the market, in the world at that time, that just felt very easy to transition to something. Now everybody at that point seemed like they were kind of moving on, uh, whether, you know, by forced or, or by their own accord. And in my case, it was my own accord. So I just started working at that point for, myself um, as a matter of of, it just felt like it was time to do something to do something new the time just
0: felt right gotcha Gotcha. no that that makes a lot of sense and you know what's funny is uh, you know i wasn't heavily exposed to this whole freight management tech uh space i would say until i I more recently moved to chicago where obviously it's a massive hub here Uh, but i would say obviously in, in the midwest as well um but but being based in toronto i'm curious to know like how did you find a gap in the market that made you want to start Rose rocket. I know you obviously have an extensive background in the industry, but just curious for, for those who don't understand the space as well. uh, What was that like for you?
1: It was a lot of uh, trial and error. So it it was, it was, you know, I think that sort of the the classic example of, of that, uh, of a startup. When you look back and you look at people who've had success doing it, it, it's oftentimes very, windy road. And it's really just one foot in front of the other and, and plenty of mistakes along the way are really anchored around this, this, this vision or this ambition. And, and the ambition and the vision change as you're going along, as you learn new things and gain more wisdom and and, and have more inputs, um, you start to get a little more crystallized in, in terms of what it is that, you know, that, that, that you're, what what it is that you're actually thinking about? So the idea I had initially uh, was to build a, social platform for people to share freight. I saw a lot of business communities that were, if you look at a, a business park, they're all these, you know, manufacturing or distribution centers they are all, they're all together, but they're all shipping, you know, on their own, they're all moving freight independent. And I thought, what would it look like if all of those companies um, were able to share freight and consolidate it, and, and, you know, save money and less trucks on the street and um, faster routes and, you know, all these things. So that was this sort of this initial idea Where we are today is far removed from that, but it was, it was that mission that started that, as I said, that sort of one foot in front of the other. And as I, uh, started understanding that the technology wasn't in place to make that happen in 2010, as an example, I would, uh, start saying, well, what can we do today? Or what is, what is limiting that from happening? And the, you know, the journey continued. And in a decade later, we've, we've built something, um, quite different, uh, than that. Uh, but but ultimately, it was it was that was the, the ethos of of everything I'm working on today,
0: right? And and if you like, if you even look at the tagline, um, it, it's more like a transportation management software. How would you explain Rose Rocket to someone who's never even stepped foot in, in the um, weather transportation or, or logistics space?
1: Yeah, so we help uh, trucking companies bring Amazon like visibility uh, to their customers.
0: Mm. Yeah yeah and and it, it's kind of interesting cuz I was taking a look at the dashboard and it's very seamless I'm I'm curious to know do you ever have any any difficulties or challenges in 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 selling technology to in some cases more uh um i don't want to say you know less tech enabled but but you know maybe customers or partners who who haven't dealt with platforms like this in the past like is there a bit of a, a change management perspective in this when you when you guys have to sell
1: yeah, certainly. And, and I don't think you're wrong to say that it's, it's not a tech enabled user group. It's, it's I think they would they would quickly
0: um,
1: raise their hand and to agree to that. I, yeah. I think we certainly um, we do have there is there's, there's a lot of challenges. I think I think every industry in their own right, especially selling B2B uh, enterprise level software is going to have to go through some levels of, of change management. I think right. where ours becomes a little more challenging than most industries is is at the frontline user level. Um, and, and so we have to be very thoughtful about how we do that. Uh, for instance, you know, many, I think, if not all of our people that get on the front lines with our, with our customers have worked in some capacity or another in, in, in a trucking company or, or logistics space. So there's a high degree of, of, of empathy. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think that's, that's been a real, um, critical component to, to, I think our success, but we're still learning a lot and that's a really challenging part of the business. Um, but we're we're getting better.
0: Yeah, I feel like that. That's also just a general challenge of startups, because you know I, I worked for a fintech startup uh, before joining the TSX, and um, the the interesting part there, I mean, it, you know, it was about fifteen people, um, and we were selling to some of the biggest banks, some of the biggest insurers, and sometimes getting on that preferred vendor list can be more more challenging, right? You know, you're a startup, uh, although you have this really cool tech, really the the uh, the, the kind of preconceived notions come around. Do they have enough credibility? are there you know can we really vouch for this for this early startup um to come into our organization and really enact some change and it was an interesting divide between like really you know being a thought leader and showing that innovation, but also not stepping the line and and being maybe um insulting in a way you know like like we have the solution and you know you, this is where you should be so it was always a difficult kind of dynamic.
1: Yeah, it's interesting too. I find that in those dynamics, you also have to be mindful of the startup of not becoming uh, the plaything of certain of certain you you know uh, buyers, perhaps. Sorry, I say buyers in air quotes. You can't see it because they they oftentimes not oftentimes, but at times may not be um, buyers at all. There seems to be this mm. voyeurism in 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 corporate uh, sort of Fortune 500 around startups where there isn't necessarily an executive level buy-in to engage with early companies, but there is usually a group of people who are really interested and like to, as I say, play with startups. Um, And and I, and I look back early days, you gain wisdom against this, but I I look at how many sort of cycles we went through uh, with larger companies. When I look back and, you know, if I, if I knew then, what I know now, I would, I would have identified much earlier that there never was a deal to be done there. We were just simply, uh, you know, again, I I say that is a play thing. Um, for for those for those companies, so I, I think that you know, to your point, there's there's lots of um, gotchas in there, and, and and it's easy to get um, a little bit drunk on your own on your own story, your own theory, and, and and convince yourself that you're making meaningful progress within within the enterprise, and and that just takes experience and cycles to really to learn what's what's real.
0: And I'm I'm curious to know, like before you know, a platform like Rose Rocket comes to the market where. You know, they're like a, you're essentially whoever you're selling this to is empowering their customers because they're able to see things like real time tracking, understanding, you know, the last known location, getting email notifications, all these alerts in real time to keep them abreast of of their, you know, their the deliveries, per se, um, on the transportation side. I'm curious to know, like, what were the you know what were your, your customers doing before this? How was that managed?
1: Yeah, I mean, phone calls and emails um, and, and largely still because we don't have every trucking company as a customer today. So, I mean, th- there is there is a, you know, one of those challenges that I, that I spoke of early as, as I sort of set out on the mission to um, to do something in this space. It, it really that one of the core fundamental challenges and in, in I think why Rose Rocket largely exists today is that carriers for the most part um, have not been on the Internet Um in that their systems are largely on-prem um and a lot of their workflows are are, are also on-prem so mm. getting that data exposed is is, is not just a um uh, sort of a business challenge but but largely a technical challenge and and so we we still are working to get many of those uh many of those assets on online and and i think that's um so, what they're doing before what they're doing today is is phone calls and emails and, and that was that was the problem we were trying to solve for there 's not a trucking company um, of, of any real size that you you would ask about um, you know their communication problems um, and and they they couldn 't speak at, at length and in depth about the pain that, that they have in that area of the business
0: yeah no for sure uh, I'm, I'm also curious to know like when when you guys had your first customer, uh, I think what happens a lot of the times and and I guess most startups can resonate with this is. You, you have to alter your product or service a little bit in the beginning because you're trying to get any customer in the door, right? I mean, not desperately, but, but you, know, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, you, you just want to really start seeing some traction. You're kind of uh, case testing this as well, trying to see where the, where the gaps are. Um, so I'm curious to know, and I'm not sure what the monetization structure is, but if it's like, let's say it's recurring, how did you, how did you make this more scalable? Because I'm assuming in the beginning there was a lot of either test and, and trials or pivots or a lot of customization in the beginning, Was that the case with you guys?
1: It was. I mean, we, we started with, um, you know, we came out as a gate selling, um, software for about 30,000 a year, if I remember, which was, which was quite a bit for a, um, you know, an an early stage product, um, an early stage startup. So we had to sell quite ahead of roadmap. You know, we, we were, we were good at demoing and good at selling visions. So it allowed us to secure uh, a few, few early customers. Um, the reality is I don't know if we have any of those customers today. I think mm-hmm. when you're initially getting started and trying to sell, and you said desperation, and I actually think there is a level of desperation, quite frankly, depending on where your funding is. If, mm-hmm. if you are like us and we're constantly running out of money for the first two years, then, then those sales had a, had a, a, a legitimate real time impact on making payroll, for instance. So we were, Selling out in front, um, selling what we, what we could, what resonated with, with the customer. Ultimately, we, we bit off more than we can chew, I think, early days in terms of the, the size of the product in which we had to deliver, um, we probably didn't really appreciate early days. And so, as we started to get into those companies that would buy from us and go through the, the onboarding processes, and we were doing a lot of things that were in scale, I mean, for 30 grand, we would, we would fly up somewhere and stay there for a week because you know, we needed to learn. So we just, we weren't thinking about, you know, the profitability of that particular sale. It was just get out there, fund us so we can fly somewhere, spend a week there, learn what we can. Um, you know, in our minds, again, as, a, as an entrepreneur, you think you can do anything most of the time. So for us, it was never, never a belief that we couldn't deliver on the product the way that they, that they wanted. But once we got into the weeds, we realized there was, there was a lot to do here. So mm-hmm. I don't know so much that we, had to pivot a lot. I think the biggest challenge for us early days is we had a lot more product to build than we'd anticipated.
0: Understood. And did you raise any money to date?
1: Mm-hmm. We've raised money. Um, we, we don't generally just, dis- we, we don't disclose um, uh, the amount, but we are mm-hmm. uh, we are venture capital funded.
0: Yeah. I, I saw also that uh, I think you passed through Y Combinator. and I think that's a, a super cool uh, thing to do. How was that experience going through Y Combinator?
1: It was, it was really, it was amazing. I mean, it was, I think what put us on the, the trajectory that, that we're on today. Um, you know, if it wasn't for Y Combinator, I don't know that we would, we would even be here just based on where we were at in our business cycle at the time um, from, from, from a revenue and just pure cash perspective, you know, things were getting pretty, pretty tight. Um, and, and Y Combinator kind of gave us a breath of uh, the breath of air that we needed um, and the inspiration, the motivation. And, you know, we, we moved down to California and we left our families and friends back here for the better part of six months and just um, did a very cliche Silicon Valley uh, experience. And it was, it was, um, you know, it was a it was a once in a lifetime experience. I mean, I guess it could be twice if I, if I were to choose, but I think Another for me, story. once in a lifetime.
0: <laughs> and How does it work for people like who are not familiar with, I guess, the process? I think most people are familiar with the name, like they know Whycom, you know as an accelerator and an incubator but how how does the actual process work so you know walk us through kind of day one you get to silicon and, and what happens next
1: yeah it's, it's a lot it's you know it's a lot more hands-off than i think people people might think it was certainly much more hands-off than i had um thought but it was it was more um it was almost like it was more yoda in a way that it was it was the things that were left unsaid uh, or, or just the, the one sentence that had a profound impact on your life um, that happened throughout the course of it. So you would you arrive there, you do an orientation. You're in a um, a, a group of there might have been say a hundred or so startups within our cohort. They do two a year, so we were summer of sixteen. Um, you meet every I'm going to forget the day, but I think every Tuesday night, um, and, and and so all the companies will come in and do a meeting, uh, which is basically a speech by a really interesting uh, CEO of a company. So with Ed Catmull, who was the, um, I think one of the, the co-founders of uh, Pixar, um, the original founders from uh, Groupon, uh, Aaron Levy from Box. So some pretty heavy hitters come in and speak and it's, and it's it's pretty interesting listening to their stories. Um, you'll meet with your, um, I call them sort of our camp counselors, but they call them, you know, your partners. So every two weeks you have a one-on-one with them and, For the most part, it's, you meet with your, with your, uh, partners. They give you some, some, this is the things we're working on. This is the focus. And we're talking like 15 minute meeting. And it's just, everything is so concise. The, the, the the amount of shared wisdom within the Y Combinator community, um, in that leadership group, they just, they can, they can, they do things in 15 minutes that, that, you know, many meetings I've been in that go three hours, don't accomplish even a quarter of what they do. It is just concise. It is precise. It is, here's the thing, do the thing, execute on this. We go away more or less for two weeks, work 17 hours a day, come back and we either done it or we haven't and, and on you go. And that goes for about four months, I think. Uh, at the end of it, you do a um, a pitch in front of us, basically a sold out auditorium of, of you know, including online, probably a thousand different investors. Um, cool. And and you do a two minute pitch. They decide if they if they like you using an app at the end of your pitch you go and uh, um, uh, decide what investors you want to meet with you do a 15 minute speed dating session with I think eight investors the following day and half the companies are funded to where they need to be or, or at least you know almost all the way there by the end of that day it's it's a it's a crazy final sort of week where you're wrapping up an entire fundraising process meeting with thirty investors um, all inbound by the way um, and 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 then you just you get back to work. And that's, that's really what we did. We, we decided on a bit of a smaller, smaller uh, raise at the time and took that money, came back to Toronto. And, and that, that was, that
0: was that. Wow. When you came back to Toronto, um, I'm curious because it's funny how you were saying kind of like, it was basically a hackathon, but more long distance, right? Like you, you needed stamina to, to withstand those four months. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, you, you present in front of uh, a sold out arena or, or, or Whatever that that room looked like, and then you come back to Toronto. I'm curious, from a cultural standpoint, what changed internally as a result of you passing through Ycom?
1: It's hard to say because I don't know what we would have been had we not have gone. Um, I okay. think as a as a group of founders, we've we've always been very uh, very ambitious. Very, uh, I don't think we would have been out of place uh, in Silicon Valley. And if we had if we were to tell people that we were from there, mm-hmm. uh, I think most people would believe us. I think I think the biggest sort of difference to coming back to Canada is I mean, if I'm gonna maybe I'll, I'll kind of reframe the question is is that what's sort of the big difference between you know running the startup here versus running the startup there I yes. would say that access to capital is certainly a lot more challenging here I think that's well documented and that's certainly that's mm-hmm. certainly very true um, I think the pressure to move fast and and, and, and growth over everything is certainly a little more muted here, and I think depending on the business you're in, that can be a, that can be actually quite a good thing. Um, it, it's less sexy, I think, but it's it's for a business like ours, it was actually the right call. I think moving overly aggressive from a from a sales perspective uh, for us early days could have actually been uh, pretty harmful to our to our company today. Um, and and so, I, I guess you know the big differences would be sort of access to capital, and just Canadians are just generally more conservative in everything we do so that that just shows up in in every restaurant encounter, every investor encounter, every customer encounter, so our customers are largely in the u s we spend a lot of our time uh in the u s and so we I think have a pretty good perspective on on sort of the nuances and the differences but but certainly the um the speed of the business, if you will um for better or worse is 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 slower here
0: yeah i think I think those are all you know solid reasonable points that a lot of people would agree on. Um, especially around kind of the conservatism or, or sometimes the passiveness, I would say. I mean, in the U S and, you know, me moving here, I would say is I've also gotten a glimpse of, of how, how much more aggressive people can be. And I think most people think it's just generally in the coasts, right? Like Boston, New York, Cali, but even in the Midwest, I mean, in Chicago, there's a bit of that sentiment as well. You know, I think the pace is just faster to your point. And, and that also aside from raising capital, I think that also impacts the way you sell to your customer, right? Because in Canada, I think there might be a hesitation for customers to really, kind of lock down that, that pilot or that MVP, even if it's, you know, for, for pennies on the dollar, right? Like it's, it's not a massive account for you. It's just like getting, getting through the door, but even that can, can take such a long time to to get through.
1: I think, you know, we, we are, we are for, for that reason, um, we are very much focused on, on the U S the U S market. I mean, it's a much larger market um, mm-hmm. unto itself, but the, but the buying persona can't, it's the, the thing I really admire um, about, I don't want to say American people. It's a little general, but at least the, the customers and the buyers that we work with is they're very good at saying no, um, yeah. and Canadians are very good at saying maybe. And and for somebody who is who is in sales and we have a, a new product and, and maybe you're saying even new to sales in general, um, maybe's become are, are really dangerous um, because they become in your mind um, if you're if you're tuned to the optimism, then the maybe becomes. A yes in waiting, where maybe's oftentimes uh, are, are really no's in waiting, and or they're just maybe's forever, which is really the same as a no. So I, I think that's something that has really been uh, refreshing, and, and and allows us to move with some level of certainty. Um, because I think if we had a pipeline full of Canadian customers, we would just be sort of stuck in this mushy middle where we'd be in in, in maybeville uh, for for too long, uh, and and you know getting predictable revenue and understanding pipeline velocity. Uh, I think could be very challenging if we were solely focused on the Canadian market as an example.
0: Yeah, that's a really, really good point. I love the way you, you framed it as well, the kind of maybe versus the no, because that's something I've, I've gone here as well. I think people are are very, very straightforward. Uh, and, and to your point, from a sales perspective, like we always want actually a no instead. I mean, obviously you always want a yes, but in the case of, you know, uh, kind of that dead space or, or people who don't reply, I think it's, it's easier to stomach a no. This way you kind of know, you know where to place that person in the pipeline or that prospect and you kind of know how to re-engage at a certain time where you can be a value or you know what uh, it's not the right time or this is just not the right fit but but thanks for your time at least you know we kind of know where we stand versus the maybe puts you into your point uh in a place of hope and you just kind of you, you might have that kind of sales um you know light at the end of the tunnel where you spend a lot of time just nurturing this prospect that frankly just doesn't want the product or it's just not the right time
1: you know when i'm coaching uh any of our, of our sales people, our, our junior sales people in, in general, um, it, it's it, and I talked to them about it, it's, it's a race to know. I want to see you get as many no's as possible. And that's, you know, because inevitably there will be yeses in that pile of no's. Exactly. So the, maybes, the maybe is not your friend. And moving someone from a maybe to a no, in my mind is a victory.
0: It's, it's better. Yeah, yeah. We used to do this practice at OWL, actually, uh, where the co-founder of Vahid, who's a really good friend of mine. That's one of the things I loved about, you know, working with him. He, he was a former consultant, worked with BCG, and Bain, I believe in, in Dubai, what's super interesting is like, we do this practice on our, in, our, in our pipeline and we'd look at, we'd be very honest. He always would tell me, he's like, don't bullshit. You know, when we do our team meetings, be very, very brutally honest with yourself about who is is who and, and, and where we should kind of think about placing them in, in the pipeline and, and how to nurture different relationships. But the most important is, you know, quality versus quantity, having a massive pipeline that, you know, looks great on paper, but is not really nurtured. There, there's no substance, doesn't matter, right? Like there's no vanity metrics when you're 15 people, there's nobody you're trying to impress. We're trying to get the results. Right. So I, I love that kind of perspective.
1: Yeah. It's a, it's a. we, we call it a, yeah, don't give me a big number. Give me, give me an accurate number. So we've actually just instituted something. This isn't my idea. We have, we have a wonderful uh, COO in, in Mike Betts, and he's, he's come up with some really uh, and, and I don't know, know if this is his idea, so I may have just given him credit on something that that wasn't his. But, uh, we, call <laughs> it, we call it the close, closest to the pin, and we're looking for the salespeople to give us the best predicted, you know, the closest, most accurate number. We don't care if it's the largest number. We want to know who can give us the most accurate number. And we, we reward for that on a monthly basis. Mm. But,
0: oh, that's that's really cool that you also have incentives. I think that that speaks volumes, you know, to the to the culture internally. Um, as a CS, CSO or Chief Strategy Officer, I'm curious, like when you uh, and obviously, I think Rose Rocket is the first startup, if I'm not mistaken. But generally speaking, like when you when you approach uh, maybe a new problem or a new opportunity, how do you think about strategy in terms of implementing something in a reasonable, scalable way?
1: Yeah, so a large part of what I do is is live um, on the on the very, very tip, if not a little bit off the roadmap. And so when I'm looking at at opportunities, I'm I'm, I'm trying to really understand um, where's the next big thing for us as a business? Um, so if I give that example, it was we you know we'd sort of started in a in a mid market. I don't want to say SMB, but it probably was. It was an SMB mid market play when we first got started, and the enterprise looked really interesting, and we we saw a lot of sort of hand raising uh, when our message would go out into the enterprise. So we had sort of, and I don't know that it was it was all all of this uh, measured, but I, I happened to end up. Working with enterprise clients and closing enterprise deals because that to me looked like the future, and so we start doing that and building those, and it worked. And now that we've built some uh, some predictability and some scalability, quite frankly, it's time for me to, to move on from that that role. So we will now backfill with with enterprise um, uh, account executives, and I will move into probably at this point I, I say probably I, I know this to be true, um, move into a uh, a channel role now um, where where we see some really interesting. Uh, opportunities uh, because we are the, 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 the system of record. So we have a really interesting power dynamic in the, in the channel arena. So I'm I'm going to be moving into, into that and what that looks like and how we create some um, virality and network effects and, 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 and those types of things in, in that part of the business. So for me and my role, it's often getting out in front of the roadmap, getting out in front of the business a little and going to some uncharted territories and trying to flush out some really big future growth opportunities and where we can, Know, plant
0: some, plant some flags in the ground. Gotcha. No, that that makes a lot of sense. You know, maybe if we if we were to pivot also on on the family side, which is which is what I open with. Um, and thanks for giving us kind of more context as to as to what you guys have been up to with Rose Rocket. Transitioning from someone who you know has more to deal with, right? Like a, a co-founder hearing this, or a aspiring founder of a startup who's let's say single, right? Doesn't have. As, as many responsibilities other than themselves or family members might be easier to put that much more time and effort into a startup, but if you're doing that with a family, you're doing that with four children. That That's very difficult. And I'm not sure what their ages are, but I'm assuming they're, they're a little bit younger. Is that correct, Justin?
1: They're, they're all over the map. In fact, I have, I shouldn't say that I have my oldest is actually, he's um, going to be 14 okay. uh, in July. And then I have a, a, a one-year-old as well.
0: Oh wow! Okay, there you go. So you're you're dealing with with basically all spectrums of of, of ages and and phases in life, man. <laughs> so so on that on that note, how do you like? I guess my first point is how do you divide Justin, the co-founder, CSO, mind versus Justin when you enter the door, your husband and dad. Like, how does that work?
1: Yeah, so I mean, as a, as an entrepreneur, we, we we don't tend to really turn off. Um, my right. my wife is an entrepreneur as well, which makes it makes it helpful. So we we at least have an understanding uh, around that um, sort of twenty four. There's there's this notion out there. So for anybody who who maybe is thinking about being an entrepreneur and hasn't been one, and they hear this, you know, they work twenty hours a day. It's a bit of a misnomer in that. I think what that means is you think about the business. 20 hours a day. Your your mind is going and you're, you're thinking of different opportunities and different situations or different conversations you've had. That's never, that just never turns off. That is always there. But if you're thinking about going into business, you already think that way anyway. So it's not new for you. Um, I think the actual, how do I divide my time? Um, you know, it's been something I've crafted uh, over over quite a long period of time because as mentioned, I have had sort of 14 years to work on it. Um, and I I think the, the key for me is I it is a, it is about building a support team around me that's amazing. My you know with Rose Rocket you know my co-founders and, and our senior leadership group are uh, they're world class operators and they do most of the work. I mean I, I would be lying if I said I'm I'm sitting there you know pounding it out ten hours a day. What I've become is a very very good delegator
0: mm-hmm. and
1: I am very effective at, at bringing in people who are far more talented and skilled than me to do almost anything in the business. Um and, and I lean heavily on on others to support me. And then at home, my wife does a lot of the work and we have some other help that we can we can lean on through family as well. So it right. just takes a village on all sides. But the truth is I, I've I've really found I feel a nice balance where, where my kids feel I would think anyway, um, well well taken care of, well loved. Um the business um gets what it what it needs from me um and and, you know could i put more hours into the business for sure would they be highly productive hours that would make a meaningful mark on the business probably not so i think it's a big it's for me it's around
0: quality i guess yeah man yeah 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 that makes sense man and especially like i i think this is something you know uh um, I would say I'm, I'm, you know, obviously in the, in the mid-20s right now. Um, but, but I think one of the things that I'm, I'm learning more so is I think the older you get to, um, not only do you have you know different perspectives, but I think what, what matters to you changes. You know, so when, when you're much, much younger, not that I'm old, but like, you know, I, I would say coming out of uni, all you think about is your career. Yeah. You know, like, especially if you're a high performer and you, you, you want uh, to achieve some some form of success, you really have to dedicate a lot of that time. And eventually you start understanding that there is more to life as well on top of that. Um, not that that is, isn't true for, for high performers, but that you can, like there's, there's life. There's your family, friends, partners, children. Um, but, but it, it is difficult though, to be honest with you, like it's, it, it can be very difficult for people to, to know how to, how to separate the two, especially I found in COVID, like that became a bit more troublesome, you know, because like we live in a condo as an example with, with my girlfriend and, and, uh, it, it was tough to, to separate, you know, at six, seven PM once I had a, I went for a jog or whatever, I'd come back and, and find myself back on online and, and, and doing some work just naturally. I mean, I love what I do. But, you know, it was tough to just sit back on the couch and, and watch Netflix or something. You know what I mean? I don't know if yeah. that was the same for you. But
1: well, it was it, it was a unique time. And, it, and, and again, I've got I've got other things to to keep me busy. So I think when COVID is there just there wasn't anything to do. So what, you know, I think leaning into work was was sort of obvious and, and to be yeah. forgiving, quite frankly, right? I, I think that's we, we did, we did that. I did the same thing, but I felt like I also had, uh, in some ways more, more time to do that. I, I kind of go back to what you were mentioning before as you, you know, you come out of university and it's, it's all about sort of you know, high performance. I think you, you made an interesting point because you said, um, you want to be successful. And I think as we, as we get older and this isn't everybody, I mean, you, we don't yeah. all go through these things. We all have our own paths. Right. But I think on my path personally, I've continued to redefine success and not in a proactive mm-hmm. way. I don't sit down at, you know, at 30 years old and say, okay, what is success for me now? And then 35, what is success? It just sort of evolves. And, and if I were to look back at, you know, when I was, but if I were to look through those benchmarks and say from when I was 20 to when I'm 30 and I'm going to be 40 this year to say, what does success look like? That would be a very different script now. And and success has just become a much more uh, altruistic um, a goal and experience for me.
0: Mm. Yeah. It's, it's funny because, you know, my girlfriend's a psychologist and, and she talks about, the different forms of wealth as an example or different forms of success mm-hmm. so you can be successful in your career but unsuccessful in your marriage or successful in your marriage unsuccessful in your career like there are different uh, descriptions of success and i think you know to your point like what, what you're trying to achieve is a balance in in, in everything that you're trying to pursue which is, is difficult but i think it's a good kind of compass to have at least uh, I, I think we share the same ideology when, when it comes to that um i'm, I'm curious when, when you're when Maybe this has happened or not yet. I don't know. But like when you've had the conversation with your kids, and and you know they're like that. You know, that's an entrepreneur. Um, do 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 you see that they have a bit of, uh, you know, entrepreneurial DNA in, in them so far? Maybe for the fourteen-year-old, I wouldn't. Know. I don't know for the Well, no. I, I
1: mean, so just uh, yeah, they, the the three are are close together. The first three. So I mean, yeah. I see different levels of, and, and I think with the 14 year old specifically, you can start seeing more of a, um, he's just, he's just older. So he has, you know, just, he can, he can do more in terms of expressing his entrepreneurial, um, you know, energy. Um, I certainly, I certainly see it, see it in him. I see it in all, in all the kids, to be honest, you know, even, even my one-year-old it's hard to explain, but you know, kids at a very, very young age take on uh, personality traits that from my experience never leaves them. And, and so I'm already seeing things in her even that would, that would indicate, um, at least the level of of um outgoingness determination um you know she's very industrious I and mean, I'm describing a baby at this point right and so I would say that <laughs> but that, the next
0: Elon Musk man
1: <laughs> well you know it's I wouldn't wish her I wouldn't wish that life for her to be honest but I, I but I hear it if that's what she wants and go for it but I think um I think I see I see it in all of them uh but I also think that you know I think the world is going to look very different. And I think even entrepreneurship is going to look very different in even 10 years from now. So yeah. if we define entrepreneur as, as somebody who makes uh, a living and has um, success as they define it to be from doing freelance jobs forever, then that's a life well-lived. And, and that's uh, that that's, I guess, an entrepreneur, you know, you become basically an entrepreneur of your life, not just your work. And I think that's really what the next sort of stage is. Is for for my kids, they're coming into a world which is you know, life entrepreneurism, not just not just simply the nine to five that that has kind of been more more traditional, right?
0: Yeah, and I think you're seeing that too with even even large corps. Like I remember when when I well, I think in early university, I, I would say you know the, the big tech companies like Google as an example had you remember the, they had these like logical questions. Remember they ask you all these tricky questions that yeah, was, the man, like why is a
1: manhole round type things like oh, that. And
0: I was so worried. I'm like you know not, not that. I mean, I, I get I get the the rationale behind it, but it's like, come on, like, this is really why you're hiring me. And maybe it works for a subset of, of jobs, like maybe computer science or software development, whatever the case is. But it, it was like so daunting to know that, you know, this is this is what your your careerhood is is uh, based on. Uh, but they change all of that. In fact, I know that now Google, I have a buddy of mine who's telling me in Chicago that they don't even look at resumes, mm. you know, that they're actually looking at, at a well-rounded person. So to your point about being a life entrepreneur, it's crafting who you are outside of just your immediate career. What are your side hustles? You know, what are your passions? What what makes you unique, but also what gives you an original story? I think those those kind of facets make you more interesting, which actually has more of a currency in today's world.
1: I think even to that, I mean, even the term side hustle still indicates that there's a sort of a prominent and a secondary, right? I think it's it's mm-hmm. more, you know, what is your hustle?
0: Yeah. It's,
1: it's w- w- who are you? What do you do not defined by? And I love the idea of not looking at a resume because it, that is sort of, that falls into that, What school did you go to? What, what class are you in? And, and, and now we sort of, and it's, it's that, you know, that, that is that, that's a very, you know, it's, it's a very long sort of standing, um, I think, tradition and mindset that we really, as a society need to, need to move away from. and, And, and I, and I really, I really like that. So I'm, I'm happy to hear that.
0: Speaking of resumes, I think there's about 40 to 50 people at Rose Rocket. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I think it's a little more now. Um, we're, I don't know how updated <laughs> we are on that stuff. And quite honestly, through COVID, we've we've been hiring. And and I, as I said, I've, I've got such an amazing amount of people around me. I I don't pretend to know every time we hire someone at this point. So I think mm-hmm. we're probably around, yeah, maybe around fifty fifty five somewhere like that.
0: Gotcha. When you just even as a as a like, let's say, if you're looking to hire within your team, speaking of resumes or or not having resumes, mm-hmm. what what are the three things that you would look for in a candidate?
1: I think I think it's very job specific, but I would I, generally speaking, I'm looking
0: for. Yeah, this is more like person, by the way, not not like uh, IQ, more so on the EQ side. Kind yeah, of
1: and even in the in the interview process, I, I'm I'm usually the last the last batter, because I'm kind of there for the the sanity check and the vibe check. Um, so my interviews are unlike most any where it's it's gonna it probably sounds a lot like this more so. So mm-hmm. what I'm looking for is somebody that I, that I would be comfortable to hang out and have a conversation with. Um, just about that, you know, we have sort of common interest and we're, we're kind of on the, on the same path and you know, like attracts like. So I'm looking for that, that energy flow. Um, I'm looking for, I, I really value, uh, what I call you know, give a shitness. Um, which is just that, that ability is kind of a combination of industriousness, loyalty, uh, independent working, just enough that when, when totally on your own and faced with a problem, you'll do what's required to figure it out. And oftentimes it's asking for help. So I think sort of that third point to, to that is really seeing a level of, of humility um in that you know you're going to have to ask for help. And I think in particular, um young men really struggle with this. And so I'm I'm trying to trying to really call out uh the, their ability to 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 be able to ask for help.
0: Mm. Yeah it's kind of weird that, that that's true. And 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 especially you know you, as a leader, I would say one of the things that you were saying is I'm a very good delegator. Uh, that can also be, be, I think it's more of an ego play. And, and I guess some men mature more quickly on that paradigm than others. But, but I think it has to do a lot, a lot with ego. And I've struggled with this in the past as well, where especially if you're a newcomer or let's say, you know, you're younger in a more uh, executive role, I would say, or, or, or more important role. Um, you know, you, you really want to establish your, not only confidence, but your credibility and you want to show people that you can do this. And it's kind of a, it it takes time to understand when you can ask for help versus when you should show initiative and be proactive to figure it out yourself, you know?
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I I totally agree. And that does, and that's why, like, I think I, why I pointed to sort of to, to young men with that is I think there is a, a, a bravado. Uh, that comes with that. But you know, you can only go so so far on your own. And, you know, I, I think about even if I'm advising a, you know, if a startup approaches me and says, hey, I, you know, here's what I'm doing to have, you know, some this happens. People will randomly reach out and they just want to chat about their business they're thinking about or they've started. And um, you know, solo founders really scare me, you know, in terms of like a business. If somebody's doing that, the first thing I'll advise is get a co founder. And and I think that that that's sort of the the impetus of the whole asking for help and delegating is you can't do it on your own raising kids on your own is oh, unbelievably I difficult. I can't even imagine. <laughs> I can't imagine. I think, and you know, and women, so many women do it and it's, it's what an incredible beat that
0: is. And, and awesome. so,
1: you know, doing that and, and, and running a business on your own and, and just like, why, you know, if you can, if you can help it, don't do that.
0: <laughs> but there's also research. I, I can't remember what, where the report was or maybe the book I read, but it was actually, it showed that an overwhelming majority of, of, Startups that had at least two or more co-founders uh, ended up succeeding more than the ones that had just a sole founder, which is logical. But I remember what the ex- you know exact percentage was. Um, to your point there, it should so. be
1: it should be gigantically different, quite quite honestly. I mean the the Zuckerbergs and and the Bezos, as much as they're they're famous and and they're they're they did not do that on their own. So it's it's a name only even at that point.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, and and maybe the last question for you, Justin. And I really appreciate your time. Is when you do get hit up on, let's say LinkedIn, um, and it's another aspiring founder just wanting to talk about the business, just like you were alluding to. What is typically that piece of advice that that you you leave these these founders with um, more so than others? Hmm.
1: I suppose I suppose I you know that might be one of them uh, is, is is to find a co-founder uh, first principles. Uh, and, and, and really, for me, I, I am very, as, a, as just a general philosophy, um, obsessed with really, really tight um, uh, you know, vertical, squeezing the niche type go to market strategies. So um, focus on, on on a single use case, focus on the 10 customers, solve for that problem, and then expand from there. One of the biggest struggles I see entrepreneurs go through, and it's, it's just, it's the way that we're wired is really big, um, abstract thinking. And it's really around getting a focus, getting a use case, doing a thing, prove the viability of what you're doing um, in, in, a, in a super tight little bubble. Um, and if you can find 10 people who will pay for what you're doing, you've got something. And so it's just really, really focus and squeeze and squeeze. And, I, you know, one a company I admire so much is, uh, is Lululemon. You know, they started with doing yoga pants for women. That was, that was basically the thing what they did. This is, this is our thing. And you kind of look at that at the time. You're like, man, that's a pretty tight market. And now yesterday, I just saw the announcement they bought Mir, which is a interactive a sort of almost personal trainer, uh, kind of Peloton type experience uh, for, for, I imagine, a whole bunch of applications. And they're taking now that yoga pants for women model, and now whatever it would be a decade later, moving into owning the entire sort of, you know, home workout experience. Now they've got clothing for men, and they've got a brand, and they've got yoga studios, and they're it's that is that to me is, is, is an incredible way to orchestrate a business, but they started selling black yoga pants to women. That's how, that's how you do it. And that's how you start a business. And like, if I were to do it, that's how you do it.
0: It's also who you want to bet on. Right. Like as a CEO, this is kind of what you're what you're paid for. It's, it's, it's that having that vision. You know what I mean? It's it's or as an entrepreneur, I should not say just a CEO, but uh, kind of a, from a co-founding perspective is every investor asks you this. Right. Like, what is the growth story? How, what what could this become? And then how can we get there and reverse engineer that, that formula? Well, so, I think, it,
1: I, think we, I think there's a lot of challenges with that sentiment early days, though. There's this forcing function from the investors to say, give me this huge story that quite honestly, you're just making up because you don't have a crystal ball of the future. You don't know <laughs> the pivots and the steps you're going to have to make along the way. You don't know what the journey looks like. So you have to kind of create this story, stick to the story that in your heart of hearts, you know, you can't possibly even predict but be convincing enough to tell it as a, as a, as a long tail against what you're trying to do right now. So Mm. again, the tighter that is and the tighter that message, the easier that becomes to do, but you still have to have this grandiose, you know, multi-billion dollar exit strategy to, to appeal to the investor community to get in on the business. It's a really hard balancing act and it's, it's kind of bullshit, you know, in terms of how you have to paint this picture that is just, if I look at our first deck and look at what we were painting, I'm sure I could tell you a story that somehow, backed into look, we're doing that now. Truth Mm is, we we aren't, we're doing something very different. And I think that's, that's, that's with most businesses. And I think I would want to share that with people is that that is totally, totally okay. That is, that is actually the point. So it's, it's early days. I think it's when that raising that first initial capital, it's investors are betting on the founders. And I think that can't be lost. We get so lost sometimes in the story, especially in say that, that seed round. Um, It's not the story. It's, it's, it's you and your ability to articulate the story and your ability to convince them that that story has even a semblance of becoming true, well, make no mistake, that story will prove to be one you won't be telling in, in 24 months.
0: I love that. I love that. Thanks so much, man. I, I really, really appreciate not only your time, but just kind of sharing both the, the I guess, the professional and the, and the personal side of things from, from your vantage point. And uh, I'm very confident that this will be uh, of value for everyone listening. So, so thanks, Justin, for, for doing this, man. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. If you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. I'll see you next time.